like to start uh, this morning just by reading Psalm 14, verses 1 through 6. And uh, so you can just follow along there with me as I read it. But the psalmist writes this, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. This morning I'd like for you to consider what life is like for someone who does not believe in or know the Lord. Psalm 14 and verse 1 is a verse that we sometimes quote as kind of a joke. Poking fun at people who call themselves free thinkers, atheists who reject the notion of the existence of God. I've heard people call April 1st National Atheist Day. Fool has said in his heart, there's no God. But I want to suggest to you that this comes from a misunderstanding of this verse and what David is trying to say here. I don't plan to make fun of atheists this morning, and I hope you won't read this psalm and think that's what it's Uh, talking about. But more importantly, I hope that you won't read this psalm and think that it's not talking about you. The fundamental truth that is the foundation of the psalm is this. Beliefs have consequences. I like how J.J. Stuart Perrone puts it more than 100 years ago. He says very simply, the life shows what the thought of the heart is. The life shows what the thought of the heart is. If you want to know what a man believes about the world, just take a look at his life. We could sum up Psalm 14 in one sentence, I think. Say it this way, foolish men live as if God did not exist, but the wise long for his return. Foolish men live as if God did not exist, but the wise long for his return. Will you pray with me as we begin to study out Psalm 14 this morning? Dear Lord, we come to you this morning asking for your help, uh, acknowledging our weakness, our inability to to rightly understand the scriptures. We could read this, uh, this psalm and very easily miss what it's saying. We can probably easily point out many other people to whom it applies while ignoring the areas in our own life and our own heart where it applies to us. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would that you would intercede, that you would would take control of our hearts and our minds, that you would would direct us in our thoughts. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and would make it very clear to us and then would drive it home to our hearts in the place that we need it most. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I speak. Lord, help me to be careful in what I say so that I don't misrepresent your truth, but instead 
Simply proclaim it so that you can use it. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. None of us likes being called a fool. So when we read the opening line of Psalm 14, we naturally conclude that David is talking about someone else, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We put ourselves in the, the shoes of the psalmist. And all too easily and too often, we look down on those sad people who do not believe in God. And we never once consider that we might be the ones that he's talking about. The question before us this morning, as we look at verse 1, is who is the fool here? Who is the fool here? In order to answer that question, we have to consider the whole description and not just our preconceived notion of what a fool is. If I threw out to you the question, what is a fool? You would probably respond based on how we use that word in 21st century American English, right? Fool, ignorant person, someone who's unintelligent, someone who's not capable of, of understanding and comprehending things. But I don't think that's how this word is used at all in, in Psalm 14. And I think it's important for us to look at the context here to see what it, how it's described. Look again at verse 1. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But he doesn't stop there. Notice he goes on and he says, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So, trying to set aside our preconceived notion of what a fool is, consider what David says here. There's three clauses that are attached to the word fool in this verse. Right? They are corrupt. They have done abominable works, and there is none who does good. So, what kind of person is a fool? Well, according to this first verse, it's someone who is corrupt, worthless, good for nothing. In fact, he does nothing good. Someone who does detestable things, which cannot in any way be described as good. That's what he describes him as here. He says he does, they have done abominable works. That word abominable simply means abhorrent or detestable. I don't think, or I think that most of us would read that verse and the description of the fool who is corrupt, who does abominable works, does not do good. And we would say, yeah, that's not me. This guy that, that David is describing is morally bankrupt. He's a really bad guy. He's rotten to the core. I'm not like him. I'm not the kind of person David is talking about. Maybe that's true. But David doesn't stop there. Look at verse 2. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Don't you think it's a little bit ironic 
that this man that David is describing here, this fool, says in his heart, there's no God. But all the while, God is looking down from heaven and observing his life. Talk about living in denial, right? But notice, what is it that God is looking for in verse 2? What is it he's looking for when he looks down from heaven? He says here he's watching to see if there's anyone who's living with understanding. What does that mean? One who seeks after God. He equates these two ideas, living with understanding and seeking after God. The idea of understanding is circumspection, looking around, being aware of your surroundings. It's somebody who has the vision of what really is, of reality. Someone who understands what is real. And someone who understands what is real is someone who seeks after God. You see how there's an equation here. These two things are, con- are equal. Right? A person who lives knowing what is real and the way reality is seeks after God. It's not really up for discussion. It's just what it is. And so at the very least, this means we can say that anyone who says in his heart there's no God doesn't have understanding. If he says there's no God, then I guarantee you he's not seeking after God. And if he's not seeking after God, he has no understanding. That's the, the, the statement here. But it means a lot more than that. Because it means that the, 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 the filter that we're going to use to decide who is and who is not the fool, according to verse 1, is much finer than we realize at first. Right? Think of it like... Um, you know, think of it like, like a, a, a colander in the kitchen sink. And you pour, you know, you, you pour the, the, the pot into the colander, and the holes in the colander allow things to go through, right? But hopefully they're not so big that they allow everything to go through. They Hopefully they catch the solid things you want to keep and drain off the rest, right? Well, that's kind of the idea. It's a filter. It's a... It's a way to separate things. Well, we're going to use a filter. We have all mankind, everything and everyone that ever exists, and we want to figure out who is the fool. So we have to use a filter. We have to figure out a way to filter between those who belong in that first category, verse 1, the fool, and everybody else. Well, if we read verse 1, the fool is no good. He does nothing good. He's corrupt. He does abominable works. He doesn't do anything that's good. And a lot of us sitting here would say, but that doesn't describe me. I'm a good person. I'm not like that. I don't do abominable works. I'm not corrupt. But then we come to verse 2, and like I said, we realize this filter that we're using is a whole lot finer than just, I'm not a bad guy. It's not enough to say, well, I'm not corrupt. I don't do vile, wicked things, so I'm okay. Right? That's not enough pretty easy for us to get past verse 1 because most of us don't really feel that we do many truly evil things. We don't consider ourselves to be detestable. It's not, a, it's not a, an adjective that we tend to apply to ourselves very often, right? 
detestable, abhorrent, worthless, valueless, rotten. But what is God actually looking for? See, that's the question. What is God actually looking for? Those who are seeking after him. So the real question, if we're going to decide who is the fool, the real question we have to ask is, who are you seeking this morning? Are you seeking the Lord? But before you answer that question in your mind, we need to consider how God answers the question. Okay? We ask the question, who are you seeking? How does God answer that question? Look at what he says in verse 3. So, God, verse 2, looks down from heaven, looking for anyone who lives with understanding, who's seeking after God. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. I know some of you have like a a Bible that has cross-references and notes and stuff. Don't look at those right now. Without the aid of that, can anybody, I just, this is a quiz here. Can anybody tell me where these verses, verses 1 and 3 especially, are used elsewhere in Scripture? Can anybody think of a place where those verses are quoted somewhere else in Scripture? Okay, Psalm 53. He says that because Psalm 53 is almost, almost word for word identical with Psalm 14. We'll get to that when we get to Psalm 53. But there's another place where this is actually quoted somewhere else in Scripture, by another author. Anybody have? No, although the idea of turning aside there, going astray, it's actually a little bit of a different construction of, of the language. It's not the same, but that, I can see why you'd think that. New Testament, the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Okay. None that, do, that, that does good. Paul quotes these verses. Okay. So there's... Important here, these verses, there is none. They have all turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So God is looking down from heaven. He's looking for men and women who are seeking Him, living with true wisdom. And what does He find? They have all turned aside, He says. How many men does the Lord find living with understanding when He looks down on the earth? None. Not even one. The phrase turned aside suggests wandering aimlessly, right, off the path. Definitely definitely not heading toward the Lord. Not seeking Him. See, this is the second thing. So not only does He do nothing good, He doesn't seek God. It's not enough to say, well, I'm not a bad person, right? It's not enough to say, oh, I'm not rotten, I'm not vile, I'm not terrible, I don't do horrible, wicked things. Okay, for the sake of argument, I'll grant you that. But then we come to verse 2 and we realize the standard is higher than that. Are you seeking God? When God looks down from heaven, he looks down and he sees none. A couple of days ago, I opened up a bag of chocolate milk from Quick Trip that had been in our fridge. And I poured glasses for the kids at breakfast because they wanted chocolate milk. And I didn't pay attention to it, and I, I, I feel really bad about it because I poured glasses, and Levi got his first, and he started drinking it, and he told me that it didn't taste good. 
And I told him, hey, don't worry about it, just drink it. And I wasn't really thinking about it. Then the other kids tasted it, and they all said the same thing. It didn't taste good. So I look in the bag, and I look at the date on the bag, and sure enough, it was had been sitting in our fridge a couple weeks too long, put it that way. Apparently, the fact that it was chocolate milk didn't keep it from turning sour either. Well, the interesting thing is, that's the word that David uses here in verse 3. He says they have together become corrupt. That word corrupt is a word that really talks about spoiled milk. It's milk that's gone sour. So what does God see when he looks down from heaven at men? He doesn't see, you know, well-meaning, good people. People who just make mistakes every once in a while. He doesn't see, you know, people whose good, you know, generally outweighs their bad. He looks down at earth, he looks down at men from heaven and he sees and smells sour milk. So when it says abominable works, that's not surprising. Again, abominable means abhorrent. Well, the smell of rottenness, the smell of, of milk that has gone south is pretty distinctive, isn't it? That's what it says. That's how he describes mankind. Can we really say, in verse 1, the fool refers to someone else, to everyone else? That's what we want to say. We want to look at verse 1 and say, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That is somebody other than me. Right? Can we really do that? When God says, there is none who does good, no, not one. We want to think that this is some person who is especially evil, you know? A murderer, a predator, a politician even. But not us. Surely not us. But as one author put it, the fool is not a rare subspecies within the human race. All human beings are fools apart from the wisdom of God. I would suggest to you that, Roman, or, uh, that Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, is an all-encompassing statement. It is the declaration, the united cry, of the hearts of men. If God were to answer the question for you, who are you seeking? What he would say is that you and I are wandering aimlessly, not looking for him or doing good in any way, shape, or form. Yet we find it very difficult to admit that we are truly corrupt, that we have really gone astray. When we apply the entire context, though, of these first three verses, in order to define and identify the fool, who is the fool, we find this, that we are him and he is us. Who is the fool? It's us. It's us as sinful, rebellious creatures. You can try and deflect it all you want. 
But David doesn't leave you any wiggle room at all. There is none who does good. No, not one. You're not the exception. You can't be. There aren't any exceptions. God looks down from heaven. There is none that do good. Not even one. But he doesn't stop there. He says more about the fool. He describes and answers the question, what is the fool like? Look at verse 4. He goes on. He have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? He poses a question here. The question is, does he really not know? Does the fool really not know? Is he really out of touch with reality? Does he really not see? To the psalmist, it's as clear as can be. But the fool refuses to see it. He doesn't know because he doesn't want to know. He is a worker of iniquity. That's what he describes him in verse 4. His, that means his deeds are empty and worthless. It means that, that, that nothing that he does can accomplish anything of lasting good. He describes him here as those who eat up my people as though they were eating bread. Think about the thoughtlessness, the lack of compassion that's described there. They eat up my people as though they were eating bread. no sense of a value of human life, no sense of the importance of the individual, no, just thoughtlessness, lack of compassion. His actions cause great pain and suffering, especially for the righteous, the faithful. But as we see here in this verse, the, the description of this person, this fool, who's a worker of iniquity, who does worthless, empty things, who is compassionless with respect to other people, using them. This is someone who's completely self-centered. What this is is someone who doesn't care about anyone but himself. So when David describes the fool here, this man doesn't care about anyone but himself. Of course he doesn't call on the Lord. The last part of verse 5. Why would he? He's already concluded in his heart that there is no God. He has no time for God anyways. Because he's completely wrapped up in himself. The interesting thing is this kind of leads into verse 5 because the, this is why ultimately the life of the fool is hard. It's lonely. It's a tragic existence. There's no sense of purpose. There's no sense of leading of God if we deny Him. There's no lasting impact, right? Because everything that is done is done for this life only. And this life comes and this life goes. 
nothing less. If you're living this way, living to please yourself without compassion toward others and without submitting to the Lord, then it just shows you do not have any knowledge of the truth. You don't know what's really going on. That's what he's saying here. Don't they know? Have they no knowledge at all? Are they completely ignorant is what he's saying. And again, please don't misunderstand. He's not making fun of them. He's simply pointing out that there's a fundamental difference between the fool and the wise person. Look at verse 5, though. Because again, this is the consequence of living in this way. This is the consequence of rejecting the Lord and determining that we're going to live according to the dictates of our own heart. Verse 5, he says, "There, There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. There's a lot of debate about what the word there means in verse 5 what it's talking about, some instance of God's judgment, some thing in the past. Maybe maybe he's talking about them in the future, but talking about it as if it were present, when God comes to judge. I think that we have to ask this. Does there ever come a time when the blindfold slips off for the fool? For the person who has rejected God, who said there is no God, doesn't want to acknowledge God. Is the fool ever forced to see his own sin and the consequences it brings? And I think the answer to that is yes. Oftentimes this happens when tragedy strikes, right? When there's a loss, there's a time of grief, and that pain brings to the forefront those the great questions about the meaning and purpose of life. But what happens when we're faced with with those questions about the meaning of life and we've already determined to go our own way, to live apart from God? Well, the fool has done that. He has nowhere to turn to find answers to his questions. There's nowhere for him to go to find answers to the questions about life because he's already turned his back on God. There's nowhere for him to find hope and peace in time of turmoil because he's already ruled out God. He's already said he won't turn to God. I think that's what David is talking about in verse 5. Men who reject the Lord live in a constant state of anxiety and fear. Because we really can't escape the fact of our sin and our guilt. A lot of people today talk about the idea of guilt as if it were an antiquated concept. And they declare that they will feel no guilt. And they say that they can do what they want and live as they please. And the only reason they would feel guilty is if someone else tried to force that on them. But they're determined not to live with guilt. Well, the fact of the matter is, our hospitals and rehab facilities are filled with people who have the the most potent feeling of guilt that they cannot escape. And they turn to alcohol and drugs and who knows how many other addictions in order to try 
cover over that guilt. To find a way to not feel it. I think that's what he's describing here. There, they are in great fear. This is the life of someone who is determined to, to live apart from God. It's a life of fear and anxiety. It's not a life of peace. It's not a life of hope. We can't escape the fact of our sin and our guilt. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, the ghost of past sin is a terrible specter 